good evening and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip the Deacon. Uh, on behalf of St. Philip the Deacon and Mount Olivet Lutheran Church of Plymouth, who jointly present this series, it's my pleasure to welcome you here tonight. Thank you for coming out. This is the start of the 14th season of the Faith and Life Lectures. I get, it gets harder and harder for me to believe that with each passing year. Uh, thank you all for being here to celebrate that anniversary with us. I always like to ask at the start of these events, how many of you have never been to a Faith and Life event before tonight? Wonderful. Great. A special welcome to all of you. If you could each just tell me how you heard about it real quickly. <laughs> Kidding. Um, so for 14 years now, or this is the 14th year, we have been inviting thoughtful, wonderful speakers to come here from around the country and indeed from around the world to talk about how the Christian faith connects with different dimensions of everyday life. If you've been here before, you know we've talked, we've featured artists, uh, we've featured authors, we've featured doctors. One thing that's come up um, more than a few times, and our speaker and I were speaking about this earlier today, is the uh, issue of faith and science, and I'm delighted to have the chance to hear uh, Leslie here tonight uh, reflect on that. You can read about her bio. Um, among other things, she has a PhD from Stanford. She did a lot of work at Lockheed, uh, including for NASA's Hubble Space Telescope project. I always like to add some unexpected twists in my introductions about our speakers, though. Um, and two things stood out as we were talking. One is that she, this is true, she played tight end for the women's professional football championship team, the California Quake. So maybe she can... <laughs> what, what year was that? Um, I, oh, sorry, I forgot it was on. Um, uh, I played from 2001 to 2006, I think. Okay. You can ask her about that later. The other one is, has anyone seen Ocean's Eleven? So you know the famous scene of the fountains at the Bellagio? Yeah, so again, I'm not making this up. She worked for two and a half years to help develop those fountains. Um, so again, another thing you could ask her about <laughs> after her talk. <laughs> um, after her talk, you'll have a chance to ask her some questions, so I invite you to be thinking about those, and you can come up to a microphone at the end of the talk. Uh, will you join me in a warm Minnesota welcome to Leslie Wickman? Well, good evening. It's wonderful to be here with you, and um, it's actually my first visit to Minnesota. And so I guess the weather's like this all the time, right? <laughs> Pretty much perfect. <laughs> so anyway, it's very good to be with you, and thanks so much for the warm welcome. <clears throat> so many people might think that to even mention faith in science in the same conversation is either argumentative or confusing or just plain nonsense. But is it really? Uh, this is a topic that's addressed in my recent book, God of the Big Bang, How Modern Science Affirms the Creator. And it's also what I'll be talking about tonight. And this topic is particularly important for students, young adults, and church congregations as well. Uh, since recently, social researcher David Kinnaman, in his recent book, which is called You Lost Me, um, reports that 
one of the most important issues or reasons that young people are leaving the church today is their perception that the church is anti-science. So first of all, there are three basic ways that people tend to view the relationship between science and faith. The first one is that of conflict between the two, which is perhaps characterized, at least in part, in part by fear and confusion, in which either science or faith is given a more respected or prioritized position and therefore wins. The second view is one of independence, which is characterized by tolerance, separate paths, or as Stephen Jay Gould liked to say, NOMA, or non-overlapping magisteria, to describe completely separate areas of inquiry. The third view is that of integration, which is characterized by cooperation, engagement, and dialogue between the two fields. So if you're not too shy to raise your hand again, how many of you would identify with the conflict view? Okay, and I would say in, in, in a broader society, that's probably very common. Um, how about the independence view towards science and faith? Okay, a handful. Uh, what about the integration view? Wow, that is very impressive. Uh, so. For those who already are in that uh, view, this might be old news, since that's mostly what I'm going to be talking about tonight. But hopefully I'll give you some more uh, grounds or more foundation for um, holding that position. So first, to give you some personal context for this lecture, I'd like to share my own story. My interest in science started at an early age when my father, who was an engineer, would take us kids outside on clear starry nights to look at the stars and the moon and the planets. And I should, I should mention that clear starry nights were somewhat of a rare occurrence in the rainy Pacific Northwest where I grew up. So I have especially fond memories of those days. So gazing at the heavens, I started wondering about life's big questions, the same kinds of questions that have been asked ever since humans first inhabited this planet. Questions like, where did all this come from? How big is it? How long has it been here? Why are we here? How will it all end? And one of my students' favorite questions, is there anyone else out there? Starry nights do that to us. They make us think and feel and wonder about life's big questions. Growing up in a Christian home and coming to faith at an early age, I always believed in my heart that God was the source of all this wonder. But I went to secular schools all the way from grade school on through grad school, and I heard over and over again in my science classes that the facts of nature have nothing to do with either God or religion. But if God was who he claimed to be as the creator of the very universe I was studying, then how could the truth about God contradict the truth about his creation? This just didn't make any sense to me, even at an early age. So my quest to reconcile science and faith began when I was pretty young. But even though I felt God draw me, drawing me to explore his creation, 
At an early age, I was afraid of the perceived conflict between them. And, and so even though I'd always been good at math and science, I chose to major in the humanities as an undergrad student. But God didn't let me off the hook quite that easily. And he drew me back into science and engineering during grad school. And the more I studied, the more I saw how the latest scientific discoveries in biology, physics, and astronomy all support faith in God. So in the middle of grad school, I started working at Lockheed on both uh, the Hubble Space Telescope program as well as the International Space Station program for NASA. And before long, I was designated as Lockheed's corporate astronaut. In this role, I went through literally hundreds of hours of simulation and training exercises. I got my pilot's license. I participated in neutral buoyancy simulations in gigantic water tanks. And I flew on NASA's KC-135 research aircraft, which is affectionately and accurately, I might add, also known as the Vomit Comet. <laughs> More fodder for Q&A. <laughs> And I did some consulting with the RAND Corporation, working mostly on Air Force studies, along with various NASA projects, including NASA's crew exploration vehicle, which is uh, supposed to be the replacement for the space shuttle, as well as the Mars exploration rovers. More recently, while I was teaching at Azusa Pacific University in Southern California, I really began focusing on the connections between science and faith. And now, not long ago, right after news of possible evidence for gravity waves uh, came out in the news, I was asked to write an op-ed article for CNN's website. And the CNN provocatively titled it, without asking me about it, uh, Does Big Bang Breakthrough Offer Proof of God? In it, I mentioned that science is a tool we can use to uncover the wonders of God's creation. Well, the public reaction was nothing short of astounding. The article went viral. It had over half a million views in less than a week, 70,000 shares on Facebook, and for a while it was in the top five uh, worldwide most shared news stories on social media. So on top of that, I received tons of email, which was mostly positive, uh, but peppered with a little hate mail just to keep things interesting. And one person even got a hold of my personal cell phone number and called to give me a piece of his mind on the topic. Well, this experience really made me realize just how polarized people can be on the relationship between science and religion. In fact, I would say that the illusion of conflict between science and religion, or science and faith, is perpetuated primarily by religious on the one hand and atheistic on the other, fundamentalists at polar extremes of the dialogue. People who are so completely, really emotionally entrenched in their own positions that it's very hard for them to step back and think critically about their own perspectives. Well, these two extreme positions give rise to this perceived dichotomy between science on the one hand, which people sometimes associate with godless evolution, and religion with an almost magical view of instantaneous creation by God on the other. But the real conflict is not between science and religion, but rather between scientism, 
which is a combination of natural science and a secular worldview, and creationism, a combination of Christian uh, worldview plus a strict 21st century Western biblical literalism that doesn't really exist nearly as much in other parts of the world, especially with regard to a six-day creation. So perhaps what we're seeing as this perceived conflict is really just a confusion or a conflation of concepts that don't necessarily go together. In other words, science can be successfully practiced without a secular worldview, just as Christianity can be faithfully practiced without a six-day interpretation of creation. So I would like to suggest that there's some fertile middle ground for meaningful dialogue about these topics that can bring together voices from both science and religion. If God truly is the creator, then he will reveal himself through what he's created. And this isn't just my take on this topic. Contrary to what you may have heard, a recent study out of a university in Texas uh, showed that 61% of American scientists self-identify as Christian. And more broadly, uh, across our national borders, 40% of scientists surveyed believed in a, believe in a personal God and life after death. In fact, many famous scientists throughout history have believed in God as the creator. So to give you a little more background on this dialogue between the two, uh, there are four classical arguments for the existence of God. The first two I'm just gonna mention quickly. Uh, first we have the ontological argument which was originated by Saint Anselm. Um, and it is described like this. Anyone who would even consider that God does exist is in a sense admitting that there is a God because part of what we mean when we speak of God is a perfect being. And a God that exists is more perfect than a God that doesn't. If perfection is a part of the concept of God and if God's perfection implies God's existence, then to speak of God as a perfect being is in a sense to imply that he exists. Now that's, that's kind of an abstract philosophical argument and I'm not gonna spend any more time on that uh, today. We need to get on to the others. But the next one I want to mention briefly is the anthropological argument for God's existence. And this argument is based on evidence for the human spirit which differentiates us from the animals. And it's evidenced by our quest for meaning and purpose in life. When we worship, we're able to think abstractly and project ourselves mentally into the spiritual domain. In addition, the moral component of this anthropological argument asserts that the universal, innate, human awareness of right and wrong, which is also referred to as moral conscience, implies a moral creator who put it there. These distinctly human spiritual traits are said to point to an intelligent, moral, and personal creator. Now the next two arguments that I'll be addressing in greater depth um, are the cosmological argument or the first cause argument and the teleological or purposeful design argument. Um, but they relate very closely to ways in which science affirms faith. So um, I will get back to those, I'll circle back to those in a little bit here. Uh, so from here, I'd like to proceed by going over a few key pieces of evidence to help you understand how science and faith fit together in an integrated way. 
So first of all, modern science arose in Christianized Western Europe. Science writer Michael Covington writes that Jews, Christians, and Muslims, all monotheists, believe in a creator who made an orderly, rational, understandable universe and gave us permission to investigate and utilize it, thereby legitimizing science and technology and paving the way for modern science. On the other hand, atheists aren't able to explain why it's even possible for us to understand the universe. As uh, Albert Einstein, who identified himself as a deist, wrote in 1936, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. Also, Francis Bacon wrote and Galileo affirmed, God is the author of two books, scripture and creation. So isn't it reasonable to think that two books by the same author would corroborate each other? Furthermore, the great thinkers who were instrumental in developing the modern scientific method were all devoted Christians, as you can see on this list. The next piece of evidence uniting science and faith is the Big Bang. The Big Bang theory has been called the most successful theory of the universe ever because all our observational data so far is very consistent with it. The Big Bang model of the universe, which is based on evidence that the universe is expanding, is much more God-friendly than the model that was popular before it, which was the steady-state model. Now, the steady-state model, which is exemplified by Carl Sagan's famous statement that the universe is all that is, all that ever was, and all that ever will be, says that the universe always existed, so there was no need to explain a beginning. The Big Bang model states that there was a beginning to the universe, and by the cause and effect logic of the cosmological argument, which is one of the ones I just mentioned, a beginning necessitates a cause, or a beginner. Atheist philosopher Kai Nelson writes, suppose you suddenly hear a loud bang, and you ask me, what made that bang? And I reply, nothing, it just happened. You would not accept that. The same thing goes for our universe. So since the effect of the Big Bang marks the beginning of space, time, mass, and energy, there must have been something or someone that caused it. And also, contrary to popular opinion, the Big Bang was not a chaotic explosion, but rather a very highly ordered event requiring vast amounts of information. Physicist Stephen Hawking wrote, if the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in a hundred thousand million million, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present state. The odds of this happening just by random chance are worse than your odds of randomly picking just the right grain of sand on all the beaches of the world, or picking one specific star out of the universe full of stars. Any faster than this critical expansion rate and matter would have dispersed too rapidly to allow stars and galaxies to form. Another prominent scientist, George Smoot, describes the creation event as finely orchestrated. One of Hawking's associates, Roger Penrose, showed that the highly ordered, or for you physicists, low entropy, 
initial state of the universe is not something that could have occurred by even the wildest chance. And when atheist Fred Hoyle calculated the probability that carb the carbon atom would have precisely the required resonance just by chance to get the universe we have, he said that his atheism was greatly shaken, adding a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics. Roger White from MIT makes the analogy of dozens of dials on a high security lock having to be set at precise values to avoid nuclear bombs from detonating. And science historian Frederick Burnham notes that the idea that God created the universe is, more is a more respectable hypothesis today than at any time in the past hundred years. So next, let's look at the teleological argument, which is perhaps the most commonly discussed argument for God's existence in today's science and technology-oriented society. This argument claims that the design and order observed in the natural realm point to a purposeful creator. The teleological argument goes hand in hand with the anthropic principle, which is also known as the Goldilocks principle, which is also known as the fine-tuning argument. So it goes by a lot of names. But it points out that just like all the just right things Goldilocks found at the Three Bears house, both the Earth and the universe have a long list of characteristics that are just right for life. For example, the Earth is not too hot, not too cold, not too big, not too small. Our gravity is not too strong, not too weak. Our atmosphere is not too thick, not too thin. And the list goes on and on. If any of these characteristics were off by even just a little, life would be impossible. A friend of mine, Ron Cottrell, uh, wrote in his book, The Remarkable Spaceship Earth. It's a nice little uh, coffee table book. Uh, in it, he points out nine specific attributes of the Earth that make it habitable. So for starters, if Earth's distance from the sun were just 1%, or, sorry, 5% smaller, the atmospheric greenhouse effect would raise surface temperatures to nearly 500 degrees Celsius or 900 degrees Fahrenheit, similar to what we see on Venus. If the Earth-Sun distance were just 1% greater, the Earth would experience a continual ice age. If Earth's mass and diameter were greater, Earth's core temperature would be hotter, which would increase our surface temperatures. Earth's gravity and atmospheric pressure would also be greater, with more of the lightweight, dangerous gases like methane and ammonia being retained in our atmosphere. A very small increase in Earth's size would make life altogether impossible. On the other hand, if Earth's weight and diameter were smaller, its gravity would be weaker, and our atmosphere, including the essential oxygen and water vapor, would be too light to be retained in the atmosphere and the decreased surface temperatures would result in a wasteland, similar to what we see on Mars. Now here's another amazing example of fine-tuning, the fine-tuning of Earth's gravity. The deadly gases, methane and ammonia, which if you remember from high school chemistry, methane is CH4 and ammonia is NH3, have molecular weights of 16 and 17 grams per mole, respectively and are fortunately a little too light 
for Earth's gravity to hold them in our atmosphere for long periods of time. But the life-giving water vapor, H2O, only slightly heavier at 18 grams per mole, is just barely heavy enough. So that slight difference between the weight of life-giving water vapor and the poisonous methane and ammonia is how finely tuned our Earth's gravity is. To me, that's very remarkable. Earth's atmosphere, as viewed from space, has been described as a thin blue line since it appears almost insignificant next to the Earth. Yet our atmosphere insulates us from the extreme temperatures of day to night in space. Uh, the temperatures during the nighttime in space range from negative 150 degrees Celsius or negative 250 degrees Fahrenheit up to about 120 degrees uh, Celsius or positive 250 degrees Fahrenheit. It also protects us from harmful solar and cosmic radiation. And our atmosphere's composition is just perfect, with 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, 1% argon and other trace gases. More or less of either nitrogen or oxygen would ultimately result in death. For example, if there were more oxygen, everything would burn a lot faster, in including our body's metabolic rates, and our bodies would age and die quicker. Earth's magnetic field protects the atmosphere by repelling charged particles from the sun's solar wind, which might otherwise strip away the atmosphere from the Earth. Also, interestingly, migratory animals such as honeybees, butterflies, homing pigeons, tuna, dolphins, all have a substance called magnetite in their brains, which acts like a compass needle enabling them to sense the orientation of the Earth's magnetic field and make their seasonal migrations northward and southward within it. And the small amount of solar wind that creeps through the magnetic field at Earth's north and south poles produce the auroras, which act as beautiful reminders of how the magnetic field protects us. The ozone layer in our stratosphere further protects us by absorbing high-energy radiation from space. If there were less ozone in the stratosphere, biological life would be destroyed by the excess radiation. If there were more ozone in the stratosphere, biological life would not receive enough of the sun's energy for photosynthesis and vitamin D synthesis. And the small amount of water vapor in our atmosphere, in addition to carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, helps to hold in some heat, in addition to providing us with rain as a vital part of Earth's water cycle. Any more greenhouse gases, and we get a runaway greenhouse effect. Any less water vapor, and life on Earth suffers from meager to no rainfall. Earth is the only place in the universe known so far to have a water existing in all three physical phases, solid, liquid, and gas, which is ne necessary to establish a water cycle, which is necessary for life. Simply put, where there's water, there's life. Where there's no water, there are wastelands. Walter water is a basic building block and perfect solvent for other chemicals that are needed for life. It's probably the most important compound on the Earth, 
it has a relatively low boiling point, which allows it to be easily purified on an ongoing basis as part of our life-sustaining water cycle. Another important yet bizarre property of water is that unlike other substances, it becomes less dense when it freezes and floats on top of liquid water, acting like an insulating blanket. Without this strange characteristic, it would act like other liquids, becoming denser and sinking as it freezes, allowing more and more ice to form on top of the surface. In this scenario, rivers, lakes, and oceans would freeze essentially solid during the winter. In the summer, only the top layer of the ice would melt, and Earth's water would exist as masses of solid ice with surface slush, and biological life would again be impossible. We don't often think about how often lightning hits the Earth, but on average, lightning strikes somewhere on the Earth about once each second. More than that, and we'd have, we'd have too many grass fires and forest fires, less than that, and not enough nitrogen from the atmosphere would get converted into nitrates, which are essential for plant growth. And as we all know, the Earth makes a complete rotation every 24 hours about an axis running through its north and south poles. A slower rotation rate would cause longer days and nights, and plant life could burn up during the longer days or freeze during the long nights. A faster daily rotation rate would drastically alter Earth's cl climates. The tropics would get warmer and the poles would get colder, reducing the livable areas and possibly bringing about another ice age. I was just hoping that wasn't my phone. <laughs> the 23 and a half degree tilt of Earth's north-south polar axis as it revolves around the sun, produces seasons, and actually doubles the available crop-growing land area on the Earth. Our moon has not only helped ancient people keep time, but it's also largely responsible for our ocean tides. If the moon were bigger or much closer, it would cause tidal, wave, tidal waves, submerging continents on a regular basis. If it were smaller or much further away, there would be no tides, and shoreline waters would quickly stagnate. The moon is also just the right size to stabilize Earth's rotation axis at that 23 and a half degree tilt, as well as to maintain the Earth's rotation rate at 24 hours per day. If the Earth had more or less than one moon, our tides, daily rotation rate, and tilt would all be impacted. Earth's crust, its outer geological layer, ranges from about six and a half kilometers or four miles thick under the ocean basins to 50 kilometers or 30 miles thick under some of the mountain peaks. Yet if the Earth's crust were on average just about 10 feet thicker, the metallic elements within the crust would have combined with all the free oxygen in our atmosphere, making it unavailable for life. On the other hand, if the Earth's crust were any thinner, it would be less stable, and there would be much more seismic earthquake activity as well as volcanic activity. Now, even though thousands of extrasolar planets or planets around other stars have been detected, and perhaps many sun-like stars out there could support planetary systems, all of our space exploration so far 
has shown that our neighbors in space are not remotely capable of sustaining life of any complexity. For example, Earth's so-called sister planet, Venus, is just slightly smaller than the Earth and a little closer to the Sun, but that's where their similarities end. Venus has a surface temperature of about 900 degrees Fahrenheit, an atmosphere so thick with carbon dioxide that its atmospheric pressure is 90 times that of the Earth, as well as clouds laced with sulfuric acid and no water. I'm kind of on a one-person campaign to not call Venus our sister planet. In the other direction from the sun, we have Mars, significantly smaller than the Earth and a little farther out from the sun, with very little atmosphere, and almost all of its water appears to be completely frozen. So there's no life-giving water cycle. So in between Venus and Mars, here on the third rock from the sun, we're just the perfect distance from the sun for life. Even beyond the Earth itself, the rest of our solar system shows signs of life-friendliness. Saturn and Jupiter, gas giants in the outer region of our solar system, are close enough to protect us from incoming Earth-bound comets and asteroids, but not so close as to disturb our perfect but fragile orbit around the sun. In fact, back in 1994, Jupiter's gravity captured the incoming comet Shoemaker-Levy, drawing it in with its massive gravity like it's done many times before. And these dark red plumes or scars on Jupiter where the comet struck it are each bigger than the Earth. Jupiter, Saturn, and the other gas giant planets kind of act like cosmic vacuum cleaners, sucking up space junk before it has a chance to reach the Earth. Our sun, which is a class G2, medium-sized, middle-aged star, is the perfect size, brightness, and age to support life. If any of those parameters are changed, life doesn't happen. Unfortunately, our sun appears to be a single star. Most stars have at least one other companion star. And if the sun had a nearby partner, our orbit would destabilize and we would ultimately crash into one or the other of the stars. And this little demonstration shows us why it's fortunate that our sun is single. I don't know, is there any way to dim the lights anymore over there? I guess I can explain to you what's going on. Um, the outer circle is the second star. The, the red dot on the screen is the second star. We've got the sun, the yellow sun in the middle, and then you can kind of make out the Earth on a blue circle in between, okay? So the, the second star in red is 70% of the mass of the sun, and it's 3.3 times as far from the sun as the Earth is. So, so let's go ahead and watch and see what happens here. So, so far, so good. And I don't know if you could see that, but it kind of swooped in, the Earth swooped in a little close to the sun on that pass. And that, again, was pretty close. I don't know if you guys remember those spirograph toys. It's kind of starting to look like a spirograph drawing here. Okay, and now the Earth moves way far away from its normal orbit. 
and that would pretty much ruin your day. <laughs> so if the Earth were just the result of some cosmic lottery, surely we could find something that could be improved upon. But when we look at all the spe special characteristics of the Earth that make it habitable, such as what we just talked about, the distance from the sun, water in all three physical phases, the thickness of its crust, the day-night cycle, its axial tilt, the magnetic field, its unique moon, the unique atmosphere, we quickly realize that we live in a pretty unique and improbable place. To change any of these essential attributes would dramatically decrease the likelihood of life existing or continuing to exist. And we see evidence of this life-friendly fine-tuning, not just here in our solar system, but throughout the entire universe. For example, if, this, if the electromagnetic force uh, of the, uh, the oppositely charged uh, protons and electrons um, that build the atoms were either stronger or weaker, chemical bonding would be dramatically altered, and we wouldn't have the right elements and compounds available for life. If the strong nuclear force that holds the uh, neutrons and protons together in the nucleus of an atom were either stronger or good for longer distances, all the protons and neutrons in the universe would be stuck together in one gigantic mass. If the strong nuclear force were weaker, we'd have no atoms heavier or larger than hydrogen. If gravity were different by enough to change your weight by even a billionth of a gram, it all falls apart. If the expansion rate of the universe were slower, or the mass density of the universe greater, or the gravitational constant greater, the universe would collapse back onto itself. If the expansion rate of the universe were faster, or the mass density lower, or the gravitational constant smaller, stars and planets would never have formed. The critical mass density of the universe is fine-tuned to one part in 10 to the 15th power. That's the, like the odds of a blindfolded person picking the one marked penny out of a stack high enough to pay off our national debt. That's a lot of pennies. So if we look at just these nine local characteristics of the Earth and assign probabilities based on just their likelihood of occurring in our solar system, where we have already a number of things going for us, like the right galactic location, the right size and age of star, etc. We can calculate the probability of all these attributes coming together to be about one chance in 50 million. But there are to date literally hundreds, not just nine, but hundreds of these finely tuned, life-friendly characteristics that have been discovered throughout the universe. And that list is getting longer all the time. A middle-of-the-pack estimate of the probability of occurrence of all these exact parameters is about one chance in 10 to the 280th power. Now that's a number that's really hard to get your brain around. There's only an estimated 10 to the 80th atoms in the entire universe. So to, to kind of try to bring that, uh, that number, that probability, down to Earth, uh, it's like the odds of the same person buying just one lottery ticket for each drawing and winning every time he or she played twice a week, every week,
for 50 years in a row. Now, I share that, that analogy with my students, and I say, you know, what if you read about that in the newspaper? What would your reaction be? And they automatically say, well, it has to be rigged. And I say, bingo. <laughs> you can say the same thing about the universe. It's rigged for life. And so overwhelming is this evidence of life or biofriendliness in the universe that currently the main counter-argument to the involvement of some type of creative intelligence is the multiverse hypothesis. The multiverse hypothesis speculates that there may be an infinite number of separate universes, each with a different set of physical laws. And perhaps our universe is the only one among all of them to get the set of physical laws just right so that life can exist. And of course, so far there's no real way to either verify or falsify the existence of additional parallel universes since we have no access to them. Uh, so the multiverse theory technically doesn't qualify as a scientific argument. It's really more of a philosophic or metaphysical one. And even if we concede the possible existence of additional universes, they still all rely on the existence of some set of orderly physical laws. And this quote is from one of my favorite scientists. Um, his name is Paul Davies at Arizona State University. And I was going to try to use a golf analogy here, but I pretty quickly realized I'm too ignorant of golf to make that fly. So what I'm going to say is he's kind of like the Super Bowl MVP of theoretical physics. Um, but unless you're Dr. Sheldon Cooper or another Caltech scientist, you might not be impressed. So I'll try to summarize the first part. Basically, he's saying that the bio or life friendliness of our universe is extravagant way more than what we need or might expect from random chance. In other words, our universe is a universe where we can thrive, not just barely survive. And multiverse explanations still assume the existence of physical laws of some sort. So they offer no explanation for why space, time, matter, and energy consistently behave in orderly patterns rather than just having utter chaos. And the last part of the quote is really too good to pass up, where he says, finally, invoking, invoking an infinity of unseen universes to explain certain features of the universe we do observe seems the antithesis of Occam's razor. It is an infinitely complex explanation. And you'll surely remember from your intro to philosophy class that Occam's razor points out that the simple uh, mo robust explanations are more likely to be correct than a, a very complex one. And here's something else to think about. What about quantum physics? That question keeps me up at night. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> so does quantum uncertainty provide the space wherein God acts? Einstein and other deists who believe that God created time, space, matter, and energy, and then stepped back, initially reacted negatively to the uncertainty implied by quantum physics. Most theistic scientists today think that God intervenes sparingly 
in the natural realm. He went to all the trouble of creating these orderly physical laws, so why would he intervene to override them? If God intervened haphazardly to overrule those laws, think about the implications. Order would cease. Cause and effect would be decoupled. Actions would have no predictable consequences. And if you think about it, with God intervening to prevent anything bad from ever happening, free will would be meaningless. Our choices would not matter if God intervened to prevent the bad actions resulting from our choices. Further, if we could prove God's existence, where then would faith come in? Even though the odds of getting everything just exactly right for life are highly improbable, it's not absolutely impossible. So maybe God is in the business of making the improbable probable. So to summarize the evidence that science and faith are compatible, first of all, there is something rather than nothing. We have this universe that we observe. Secondly, the universe had a beginning, therefore a beginner or a cause, as the cosmological argument claims. The universe has orderly physical laws, and we observe a great deal of fine-tuning in the universe, going along with the teleological argument. Quantum mechanics allows for the improbable, dare we say miracles, without violating physical laws. Modern science was established by devout Christians. And many famous Christians, I'm sorry, many famous scientists have faith, and Christians can indeed be top-notch scientists. Still, we need to be wary of possible God-of-the-gaps sort of arguments. It may take more faith to believe that all we observe came to be through random chance, but we've only scratched the surface of understanding our universe. universe. Maybe someday we'll have more scientific explanations for fine-tuning and seemingly defying the odds. But even this should not shake our faith. The message of Christianity is not fragile. God is big enough for even our toughest questions. As Oxford scholar and theologian Dr. Alistair McGrath and others have pointed out, Christianity provides the best explanation for the big picture of reality. It answers all the classical cosmological, teleological, ontological, and moral conscious arguments, as well as C.S. Lewis's arguments from reason or rational thought and desire or longing for meaning and purpose in life. So the perceived conflict between science and faith is simply not real. We've looked at evidence from science as well as scientists who have faith. There will always be people at the radical extremes of the dialogue. However, I believe that science and theology complement rather than contradict each other. If each are understood correctly, they provide us with a wonderful meeting place for conversation and mind-altering dialogue with each other. So if you yourself are still pondering life's great questions, then maybe the best thing you can do for yourself is to become a science enthusiast and expand your view of the universe and the incredible wonders of all God's creation. After all, properly practiced, science can be an act of worship in looking at God's revelation of himself in nature.
If God truly is the creator, then he will reveal himself through what he's created, and science is the tool that we can use to uncover those wonders. So I'd like to leave you with some tips for getting comfortable with the science and faith dialogue that you can use when you're talking with other people. First of all, let's approach the, dial the dialogue with an attitude of humility and grace. For as St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, now we see through a glass darkly. We don't know everything. We don't have all the answers. Next, do your best to understand the spectrum of positions and arguments on all sides. Next, realize that most people are on a journey still figuring out where they stand. Recognize that these issues are not fundamental to your faith or your salvation. Learn to live with attention. It's okay not to have it all figured out. You don't have to have all the right answers. And last but not least, don't th let the arguments or disagreements upset you. And there are lots of good books out there by people who exemplify the best in science and faith, such as these three by Sir John Polkinghorn, Dr. Alistair McGrath, and Dr. Francis Collins. These are some of my favorites. And finally, in closing, we would all do well to heed St. Augustine's advice, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Thank you. I'll just make a couple of announcements and then you can, you can stand here. Thank you very much for a wonderful talk. Again, you'll have a chance to ask some questions in a minute, so I encourage you to be thinking about those. You can come to either of the mics at the front here. Uh, but we're going to give Leslie a, a moment to rest her voice while I make a couple of announcements. Uh, first of all, I want to alert you to our next event. Uh, this is in your program tonight. It features Arnie Sorensen. Um, Leslie mentioned that that CNN piece she wrote went viral. I think Arnie has been in the news recently because of a major acquisition that Marriott made. So we're delighted. He's the CEO and president of Marriott International. Uh, we're delighted that he'll be here on October 27th. Uh, so join us for that. Um, if you would like us to alert you to those events, either by email or on Facebook, you can sign up for emails by going to our website or by leaving your email in this um, this sheet. And Cindy, it had just occurred to me, I forgot to put baskets out there. You got it. Okay, thank you. Um, it's good to have good staff. Thank you, Cindy. Um, and where was I there? Um, so Facebook or emails. The other thing I want to mention tonight, uh, in the 14 years of this series, I think I've only mentioned one non-faith and life event. Uh, but because Arnie's coming and because he's talking about business, I want to alert you to uh, another event that will be happening here featuring Jeff Van Duzer who is the provost um, of Seattle Pacific. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know him. Do you? I do know him. Do you? Yeah. Worth listening to? Absolutely. OK, Great so time. you heard it here. <laughs> we didn't plan that before. Um, it's actually co-sponsored by this congregation and some other organizations. If you'd like to learn more, you can find one of these flyers on our welcome counters at the east and west entrance of the church. It's free and open to the public. Again, uh, Saturday, October 15th, it's 9 AM to noon. It's actually co-sponsored by Bethel, where Leslie is speaking tomorrow right, uh, morning, exactly. right? Yeah. So again, look for that. If you have questions about that, you can ask me. Um, 
I mentioned the green sheets. And then, as always, I want to just say a word of thanks. Those of you who have been here before, you know that these events would not be possible with the generosity of a whole lot of people and organizations. Uh, we fund these not through the church budget, but by independent contributions. Uh, folks who, who support the series are mentioned in your program. Uh, I do know that there are some people who gave gifts after we already printed this. So if you're here and you gave a gift and you don't see your name, uh, you'll see it in the next program. And if we made any mistakes, as always, please contact me. We try really hard to be accurate with this. But a lot of the individuals uh, who helped make this possible are here tonight. Will you join me in thanking them for making it possible to do these things? And Mark Berger, I saw you earlier. Is Amanda here or not? Oh, no, okay. I was gonna, Amanda Berger is the person who got me on to Leslie. I was going to give a shout-out to Amanda, another staff member here, for um, arranging this or giving me her name. And I also want to give a shout-out to Matt Kelleher and Subtext Bookstores. Uh, they will, they're a large independent bookseller. They have Leslie's book available for sale, and she will be signing the book following the Q&A uh, in the narthex, also known as the lobby. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> All right, if there are questions, come on up. Don't be shy. We'll take questions for 15 or 20 minutes or so. Thank you. And your review of your books, to those that don't agree with you, what sort of scientific evidence have they used against your arguments in your case? And, uh, and they're not persuasive to you, but why, why are they attempted to argue against you, what you present to us tonight and in your book? Right. Quite honestly, most of the, the hate mail that I've gotten and uh, the negative uh, comments have actually been very emotional, not really uh, related to evidence. Um, and as I, as I mentioned before, it just it, uh, made me realize how polarized people can be on this and that it really in a lot of cases is more of an emotional resistance rather than an intellectual one. Um, as I mentioned, um, one of the primary counter arguments to all of this fine tuning that we see though is the multiverse hypothesis. Uh, again, which says, well, okay, I'll give you the, the teleological argument, I'll give you the Goldilocks principle. Yeah, it does seem like uh, it's way beyond the odds of getting everything just right in this universe. Uh, but if we have an infinite number of chances <laughs> to get everything right, then maybe it, it gives us a better shot at getting it all right just through chance. But as I've said before, I, I think that um, for me, the more I study uh, in all fields of science, the more I see the connections between science and faith. And to me, it just inspires more wonder and awe of who God is. So for me, I say bring on the multiverse. You know, my God's big enough. And uh, it's, you know, we'll just see more of his, his wonder and majesty uh, if and when we get to explore those. So. Yeah, I uh, had the pleasure of being involved with aerospace quality for, oh, 30 years. With, I'm sorry? In an aerospace quality. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. Overseeing key suppliers. Awesome. In the near term here, it's been with uh, SpaceX, oh, Delta 9, and 9 Heavy. My question is more practical than philosophical. Um, 
There's two schools of thought in the biz, as they say. One is manned space, and others, you know, just unmanned probes. Mm -hmm. What do you think, based on your experience, because you've, you've bridged both areas for some years, what do you think, if we put our resources out there, which one do you think we should concentrate on? That is a great question. Um, I didn't really expect it to get, to get that question from this audience. But that's <laughs> kind of, so manned space versus unmanned. Um, so, uh, wow. It's a great question, very political in a lot of ways. Um, but, but yeah, so, so there, there are things that are better done unmanned and things that are better done with humans, I think. And uh, the things that humans are, are good at are, as I'm sure you know and have thought about, are things uh, like reacting to the unexpected, um, being innovative and creative in the face of something that, that uh, we didn't anticipate. Um, however, the practicality of sending humans on long trips to other planets um, are almost prohibitive. In fact, a few years ago, I was actually asked if I would be interested in going on a Mars flyby mission, um, which would have been 501 days in a space capsule with one other person doing a round trip to Mars, essentially. And I said, sure, I'll go. <laughs> but, um, you know, there are a lot of politics involved, and, and so I'm not sure that that's going to happen. But um, for, for nearby space travel, it may be practical to send humans, but for the long-duration long ones, it becomes completely impractical because, you know, our technology is... We're only capable of going something, well, less than one one-hundredth of the speed of light. And so if you just use that conversion factor and say, well, maybe someday we'll get to a hundredth of the speed of light, the next nearest star system is 4.3 light years away, which basically means it would take us over 400 years to get there. So trying to keep a person alive in a spacecraft for that long just becomes <laughs> completely impossible, never mind thinking about the several generations it would take to do that. So, so, again, yeah, I mean, I think there's a place for each, but um, the place for humans is pretty darn close to Earth, I think. So, great question, is, though. I'd love to talk to you more about that. Is this mic on? I guess it is. Yeah. Uh, I had the question of, um, <clears throat> well, the Earth has probably existed for a few billion years, and... Uh, only in uh, maybe two, three hundred million years has it been set up for, for life. All this fine-tuning that you've listed, I believe, you know, that's correct. But um, what was God doing for the first few hundred, <laughs> for the first couple billion years, well, while the earth was evolving, was he frantically trying to get all this fine-tuning together? <laughs> I don't think God does too much frantically, but, <laughs> but no, it's a, it's a great, uh, great question. But, you know, again, we're, we read in Scripture that, you know, uh, uh, I can't remember the exact, a thousand years is as a day in the eyes of the Lord. So our view of time is so much different what, than what God's is. But, for example, maybe he was dealing with life in another universe. I mean, you know, again, it, 
I taught astronomy for 17 years at Azusa Pacific University, so I've heard nearly every question about, you know, is there other life out there and, you know, all this sort of thing. And one of the things that I, I'd like to at least um, keep an open mind to is um, I think that it would be arrogant for us to say that we are the only intelligent life God created anywhere. Uh, we, we worship a big God. And, um, you know, first of all, we don't know <laughs> whether he's created intelligent life elsewhere, and we certainly can't search everywhere where to find out. Um, but, you know, I, I like to think that, you know, throughout uh, eternity, maybe, maybe he has created other intelligent life. But anyway, also in terms of the, the fine-tuning question and everything, the sun is actually in its most, our sun is in its most stable burning phase right now. Right now is the best time for life on Earth, simply because it's not a young star, um, and it's not an old star. If it were either a young star or an old star, it would be much more volatile and the amount of heat and radiation that it would be putting out would be uh, too much for us. The variations would be too, too great. So. Hi. Thanks Hi. for your talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, a minute ago, you mentioned the idea of infinite possibilities or, or infinite chances. And one thing you don't talk about very much in your presentation is time. Mm -hmm. And many of your arguments are based on the very low probability of certain events, but if time is infinite, then low probability events are almost meaningless. So uh, I'd ask you to expand a little bit more on your concept of time, on God's right. concept of time, and how it relates to your talk. Yeah, and probably don't really have time to get into that. <laughs> Sorry, no pun intended. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, the, the Big Bang model says that the universe has not been around forever. So we do have a limited amount of time to work with in our universe. Um, uh, and I've, I'm kind of working on constructing a, a, a visual uh, to try to kind of show how my conception of time might mesh with eternity in terms of God's perspective. And this is pretty fuzzy right now, but um, my idea is kind of that the, the timeline that we exist in right now is kind of like a capsule, a time capsule with a, a start and an end to it. And that there's kind of a membrane between our time capsule and eternity. So when somebody passes into eternity, I think they're crossing that membrane from our time capsule into eternity. Um, and so in our time capsule, for us, time, work, time moves linearly in one dimension. But at the cutting edges of physics, um, we're exploring uh, possibilities of multiple dimensions, extra dimensions of both space and time that we here in this time capsule do not experience. But just imagine that, that God can move in two dimensions of time instead of just one. Okay? So for us, time is a line moving in one direction. 
But, but just imagine that for God, he can work in two dimensions, and I think that probably limits him too. <laughs> you know, um, but so if that were the case, then time could be imagined as a plane. Okay, and so our timeline goes along one edge of this plane. But if God can move back and forth in this direction also, then that means that God can be everywhere at once relative to the way we see time. So again, that's, it's a, a difficult uh, topic to unpack in just a few minutes, but it's, it's something that I've been putting a lot of thought into, too. So maybe there'll be another book on that. <laughs> so thank you for your comments. Yeah. Very much appreciated. Absolutely. On the Goldilocks principle, um, it assumes everything has been fine-tuned to accommodate human life. Mm -hmm or carbon-based life. Yeah, well, yes. Mm -hmm. But what if we imagine, in your world, I think, correctly imagine, of infinite possibilities? Mm -hmm. What about the argument that, well, if it wasn't carbon-based life, some other life would have arisen, would have evolved. We wouldn't have needed these particular parameters. It would have just been something else that right. would have arisen. Right. So. Um, so yeah, given the, the laws of physics in our universe, carbon-based life is the only kind of life we're going to get because of the metabolisms and the chemical reactions and all that sort of thing. So, so for the physical laws that we have, and I think this goes along with your point, actually, is that uh, carbon-based life is the only form of life that we can get given these laws. So if you say, okay, all bets are off in another universe, yeah. I mean, the laws of physics may not even exist, for one thing. We, there may not be any laws of physics, so everything would be completely chaotic. Um, or there could be a completely different set of laws of physics, which would completely alter even the, the elements that we would get. I mean, you can imagine that there would be elements that we wouldn't even recognize, right? So, so yeah. Anything that we talk about outside our own universe is pure speculation, right? So, so yeah, we can imagine all kinds of possibilities in a, in a universe that has different physical laws or no physical laws. But very interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I know you didn't really mention this in your talk, but could you speculate on the transition from apes to humans, oh, wow. and uh, pastor, pastor. <laughs> for, for example, do you want, do you want me to go there? <laughs> uh, apes being creatures of habit versus humans who have language and are morally accountable to God. Mm -hmm. uh, in your mind, how much uh, does that transition uh, relate to the first, let's say, three chapters of Genesis? Uh, how much of that is literal versus figurative? Um, uh, really? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I wasn't counting on theology questions. <laughs> um, just, just, I mean, how okay. do you answer for yourself? All right. Uh, oh Thank boy. you. <laughs> okay, so, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about it. I'm not going to be able to answer your question in you know, a minute or whatever. But um, So I think one of the important things for us to do is to uh, look at 
the intent of various portions of scripture, okay? So it's important to look at, you know, the genre. It's important to look at the original audience, uh, the intent of the original writer, uh, all this sort of thing. So um, I actually have a, a slide that I, I kind of try to diagram some of this. So I'm going to go back to that for a second. So, so this is a slide that I use uh, with my students a lot to kind of introduce this whole science and faith thing. So if we can agree that there's, there is absolute truth in our universe, in our existence, in our reality, which is not a given for many young people today. In a postmodern culture, sometimes we don't even agree about that. So, so, but if we can agree that absolute truth exists and say, you know, the, the question of whether or not we can attain that truth is entirely separate, okay? Truth exists, we don't know whether we have access to it or not, okay? So usually most of my students will come around to that position, they'll agree to that much, okay? And so on the left and the right hand slide, or sides of that uh, slide, we have theology and we have science, okay? Those are both human pursuits, human uh, undertakings, okay? So in theology, it's basically humans are pursuing truth about God, okay? Uh, science is humans pursuing truth about nature or creation. And uh, those, those two fields are separated by imperfect knowledge or incomplete knowledge, imperfect understanding, and imperfect interpretation. So I think as we kind of climb the sides of those, that triangle, the sides get closer and closer to agreement. And, and I, I, I really love 1 Corinthians 13, 12. I know St. Paul meant it in terms of our knowledge of God, but I think it also applies to our knowledge of God's creation. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know even as also I'm known. And the idea that we don't know everything. In fact, in science, we see this over and over and over again. We keep having to revise our theories, right? And in fact, the whole scientific method is an inductive process, right? It, it actually never claims to uh, have 100% certainty or prove anything. It's an inductive process, and basically what we're doing is looking for the best explanation given the evidence that we have so far. So properly practiced, science kind of keeps what it thinks it knows with open hands, knowing that something could change tomorrow because of new evidence. So I'd like to suggest on the theology side that we don't become uh, set in our ways or dug in also, because I mean, if you look back to you know, Jesus coming, he certainly wasn't what the Jews of his day expected. And I would go so far as to say that Jesus himself represented a paradigm shift in the Jews' understanding of who God is. So I, I'm probably getting way far away from your question. <laughs> but um, so anyway, the trick for me, or the key, the trick is probably not a good word, but uh, the key for me really is to see how these two fields of study 
best inform each other. So as I mentioned before, Francis Bacon and Galileo both refer to God revealing himself both through scripture as well as through his creation. And if, if he's the author of both of those things, we ought to be able to see them fit together. And so we have to be careful. In fact, I was giving a talk similar to this to a group of biology students at Azusa Pacific not too long ago. And the, the faculty member that was kind of running the discussion said, you know, we're really concerned about a faithful reading of scripture. And I said, amen. You know, that, that's exactly what we need to do. It's not about picking up your Bible and reading from a 21st century Western perspective these words that were penned thousands of years ago in other languages and, and saying, you know, oh, I know what that means just because I'm reading the plain-faced plain English, right? So we, the, a faithful reading of scripture is hard work, right? We really have to dig. We have to look at the genre, the context, the original authorship, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, I hope it gets a part of that question anyway. Maybe we can talk a little bit more later. And if we could only have easy questions from here on out, that would be great. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> okay, a couple more questions, and then we'll close this. I came up here going to make a comment about time. Uh, early when I was being trained as an engineer, I was getting more and more conflict between Janice and what science was hmm. saying. And an uh, uh, engineer pointed out to me, it's very simple, time. God's time versus our time, and they mesh perfectly and very accurately. But I do have another question about time. If we observe a star that's so many light years away, we see where it is, and we see how fast it's going. How do we know where it is today? That's ancient history. Right. Well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a, a good point. Um, and we do assume that the laws of physics are constant throughout the universe so that the direction that it was moving, let's just talk about an, a close by star, um, you know, 4.3 light years away, um, is still moving along the same trajectory as it was then. But, but you know, the thing is, you make, up a, make a very good point in that, you know, stars burn out when they're that far away. Let's just talk about, they might be, for, yeah, I mean, we, we generally can <coughs> estimate uh, where a, a star is in its life cycle, but yes, stars could burn out or even go supernova, and we don't see the light from them uh, either go supernova or you know go away altogether until the light has the chance to traverse that distance. So yeah, we're kind of the last to know in a sense. A big unknown. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so I have two daughters, a six-year-old and a one-year-old, and one thing I'm wrestling with is um, how they can just grow up and, you know, read, read the Bible and their children's books that family members give them and go to Sunday school and learn about six-day creation, but um, how I don't complicate that for them, because I, I want to, like... Yeah, yeah, and... Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is the problem. <laughs> um, right. So actually, you know, it's interesting. The, the organization I work with now is called the American Scientific Affiliation. And if I can put in just a little plug for that, I've actually got some brochures with me. 
the American Scientific Affiliation has a website called asa3.org. There are tons of resources on that website for you know, people at all ages and stages of life. Um, and uh, so, you know, there's a lot of resources there. One thing that, from, from a very simplistic standpoint, uh, you know, I, I feel like there are stepping stones on these journeys. And, you know, where we are today may not be where we are in two, two years. We may move along the spectrum we, as we learn things. So, uh, one of the things that I found helpful that's a very simplistic thing, uh, especially for someone who's concerned about a faithful reading of Scripture, um, is simply if we go back to the Hebrew in uh, Genesis, where the word day, yom, in Hebrew, can literally be translated either as a 24-hour day or as a long period of time or an era. And for a lot of people, that's a light bulb moment, you know, where it's like, okay, if, I, if I'm concerned about a literal reading of Genesis, um, just that one little thing, um, to know that that word can be translated as an era instead of a day is sometimes helpful. Um, I'm not advocating for that is the end of the story with Genesis by any means, but it can be a good stepping stone. Cool. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, don't applaud yet. <laughs> you can do that in a second. I'm so glad you were able to join us. She had to get up very early this morning. We've been anxious to have you with us. Thank you Thank for you taking so some time. Much. Thank you all Thank for coming you. out on a beautiful fall day. Uh, we have a, a small gift for Leslie which we give to all of our speakers. It's a piece of granite that simply says, with thanks to Leslie Wickman for bringing faith to life. And we thank you so very, very thank much. Thank you so much.